You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So inshallah continuing with our lesson on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratun Nabawiyyah. The last three weeks actually, uh, we've been talking about a very difficult time from the life of the Prophet sallallahu And subsequently for any believer, anyone who believes in Islam and holds the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in very high beloved esteem and regard, it's something that's even very difficult to talk about and something that's difficult to even listen to and recount. And that is Amul Huzn, the year of grief and sorrow for the Prophet ﷺ, which by and far was the most tragic time of his personal life. We talked about the events, the major events, where the Prophet of Allah ﷺ suffered the loss of his beloved wife Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. His wife of 25 years, the mother of his children, the first believer, his strongest supporter. Shortly thereafter, literally within weeks, the Prophet of Allah had to face and deal with another great tragedy and loss. And that was the loss of his beloved uncle, Abu Talib, who wasn't just an ordinary uncle, but rather was the man who had raised the Prophet from the age of eight. The Prophet who was without parents, without siblings, without even grandfather, by the age of eight, from the age of eight and onwards, it was Abu Talib who raised the Prophet ﷺ, who meant everything to the Prophet ﷺ, and was basically the primary family member in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Every major decision that he made in his life, as a young man, to getting married throughout his entire life, it was Abu Talib, the one that he spoke to, the one that he consulted with, the one that he sat with, the one that he always turned to. So much so that even when the message of Islam came and he was sent on his mission by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it was even then, in those circumstances, it was Abu Talib who was the pillar of support for the Prophet ﷺ and the one who defended the Prophet ﷺ through thick and thin. And as we talked about, you know, the primary position of the scholars and the historians is that Abu Talib did not accept Islam before he passed away. Nevertheless, Abu Talib stood by the side of the Prophet ﷺ, constantly voiced his support for the Prophet ﷺ, and made the Prophet ﷺ as worry-free as possible from an attack and from persecution from the people of Mecca, from Quraysh, so that the Prophet ﷺ could continue with his mission. And the Prophet ﷺ suffered the loss of this man who was so important to him. Thereafter, we talked about the aftermath of this, which is also a part of the, grief, the year of grief and sorrow, is that the, the, the Quraysh and the Meccans, and especially the leadership of Quraysh, basically now no, no longer was apprehensive or was hesitant in any way, shape, or form in attacking the Prophet ﷺ, persecuting the Prophet ﷺ, and disrespecting him at every opportunity. And we talked about how even young thugs, like teenagers, in the streets began to start to physically harass the Prophet ﷺ, attack him, assault him. We talked about how Abu Jahl multiple times 
tried to strangle the Prophet ﷺ. One other narration that I did not mention talks about the Prophet ﷺ was in sujood for an extended period of time. And Abu Jahl got up and started to walk towards the Prophet ﷺ. And he was basically dared by some of the other leaders of Quraysh to go and step on his neck and start to choke him with his foot. And then Abu Bakr anhu stepped in front of Abu Jahl and told him, no, 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 don't you dare. I see the look in your eyes. You have bad intent with the Prophet ﷺ. Back away from here. And we talked about another occasion where they had somebody come and dump the innards of a camel on the back of the Prophet ﷺ, pinning him to the ground, unable to get up. We talked about how the Prophet ﷺ, it became a daily event, a daily occurrence. Then when he would return home, he would find trash and garbage and even human filth like feces in front of his door. And he would have to roll up his sleeves and move that himself with his own blessed hands. And how when he would go inside and his face was covered with dirt and dust and his hands were filthy and his clothes had become soiled. That his daughter Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha, who was a little girl at that time, she would cry when she would see her father in this condition. And she would say, why is this happening with you, dear father? And the Prophet ﷺ would tell her that, oh my beloved daughter, ya bunayya la tabki, wa la tahzani. He said, don't cry, don't be sad. He said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَانِعٌ عَنْ أَبِيكَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَانِعٌ أَبَاكَ Allah will defend your father. And the Prophet ﷺ continued with these circumstances. But what truly makes the life of the Prophet ﷺ a source of inspiration and motivation is what the Prophet ﷺ went through. The sum of everything that he went through. And if this wasn't already overwhelming enough as it is, the Prophet of Allah was dealt with yet another great tragedy and difficulty. And this is recorded in the books of Sirah and the history of Islam as the famous incident of At-Ta'if. Now we're gonna end up breaking up this incident of Ta'if into multiple sessions. Not to prolong or drag it out, but for the simple purpose of appreciating everything that exactly transpired. There are a few different phases of even the journey to Ta'if and the, the story of Ta'if. There is the journey of the Prophet ﷺ to Ta'if. There is exactly the procedure in which the Prophet ﷺ operated with when he did arrive in Ta'if. How did he go about in conducting himself in Ta'if? There is the story, the phase of how the Prophet ﷺ left the city of Ta'if and what he had to deal with. There is even the incident of where he then stopped on the way back from Ta'if and what transpired and occurred at that time. And then there is even the phase of the story of Ta'if in how the Prophet ﷺ was able to safely return turn back to the city of Mecca. So we want to make sure that we appreciate all of these things because there are very extremely practical, relevant lessons in, in, in each and every single phase for us that we can take, that we can learn from, that we can implement to better make sense of our own lives. This is exactly why the scholars would say the seerah is the foundation of the Muslim identity. Part of our crisis, identity crisis, spiritual identity crisis as an ummah today is because of our lack of knowledge of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, a lack of understanding and a lack of insight into the experiences of the Prophet ﷺ. Which is the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ In the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, contained within him, 
the messenger of Allah, Uswatun Hasana is the ultimate role model. Regardless of who you are, where you're coming from, what you're dealing with, and where you're headed. You will find inspiration, motivation, guidance, and direction in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So we want to make sure we capitalize on this opportunity and we truly try at least. We can never fully do justice, but we can try to do our best to understand and appreciate and learn and benefit from the life of Rasulullah ﷺ. So when we talk about the story of Ta'if, the first thing that we need to understand is why Ta'if and why at this time? Why at this time I think is fairly obvious. The Prophet ﷺ had just gone through great personal tragedy. It was a turning point in his life. Secondly, the circumstances and the situation in Mecca, if it, it does not seem like it could, get, it could get any worse than it already was. But it did get worse. Things did get even worse than they already were. And that was exactly by what we talked about in the previous session, where now nobody was holding back. Nobody had any reservations or hesitation or apprehension about fully confronting and attacking the Prophet ﷺ, and obviously then also the other believers. So the Prophet ﷺ was forced to look outside of Mecca and to try to find reprieve or relief somewhere outside of Mecca. So the Prophet of Allah wasallam decided that the city of Ta'if provided the best opportunity. Now, why exactly the city of Ta'if? What is it that made the city of Ta'if so appealing to the Prophet ﷺ? So there's a few different factors that have to be considered. You know, I've talked about this, maybe, I'm not sure if I've talked about it here before, I do believe it actually came up in one of the conversations with Abu Jahl and the Prophet ﷺ. But when we think about Arabia, at right now, sitting here today, when we think about Arabia, then we, and, and we think about the two major cities of Arabia to us today, it's obviously Mecca and Medina, because of religious significance. But historically speaking, the two major cities of Arabia at that time were Mecca and Ta'if. They were the two major cities of Arabia because they were home to the two largest tribes and also most powerful tribes both in terms of number and political influence. They were home to the two most powerful tribes of Arabia. Mecca was home to Quraysh, obviously. Ta'if was home to Thaqif, Banu Thaqif, the people of Thaqif. These were the two major tribes of Arabia and that's why the two most Influential men in Arabia were also Abu Jahl or Amr bin Hisham, Abu al-Hakam as the Arabs called him at that time. So it was Abu Jahl in Mecca and it was Abu Mas'ud al-Thaqafi in Ta'if. So these were the two major cities home to the two major powers of Arabia, the two major tribes who were also home to the two most influential political leaders in Arabia at that time. So Ta'if was very, very important, very strategic. The other thing was, even from a religious, the pre-Islamic religious viewpoint of course, the pagan or shirk perspective, Ta'if was also considered another major location because one of the major idols that the pre-Islamic uh, Arabs worshipped was Allat. Alat was one of the major idols that the pre-Islamic Arabs had worshipped at that time. The home of Alat was again a Ta'if. Ta'if was where that idol was housed. And in fact, the, the people of Ta'if, Ahlul Ta'if, they didn't just simply have Alat, they had basically built a temple 
for Alat, where Alat was kept. And it was the long-standing ambition and hope of the people of Ta'if that Ta'if and the temple of Alat would attract similar attention as the Kaaba used to. It was something that they had hoped for a very long time. That they had tried to push for a very long time. This is exactly why now I'm going way far back into the Sirah. But if somebody wants to go back and refer back to that, you can go back and listen to the year of the elephant, the army of the elephants, Abraha, and the army of the elephants. One of the things that if you go back, maybe you do recall or from your own studies, or you can go back and listen to the previous recording, the podcast. What you'll find there is that when Abraha was making his way to Mecca, he along the way, actually the people of Ta'if ended up conspiring with Abraha. Because Abraha just didn't simply just march towards Mecca. Along the way, on his way to Mecca, he was so enraged, he was so bloodthirsty, that on the way to Mecca, he was destroying towns and killing people and tribes and families on his way to Mecca. That basically it was a call, you're with us or against us. Some ended up joining up with him. Most people ended up opposing him, standing against him, and he was just tearing right through them on his way to Mecca, on his way to the Kaaba. And so when he came across the people of Ta'if, they ended up out of fear of him similarly just slaughtering them, they ended up entering into a pact with them. And they had an ulterior motive and agenda for this as well. That part of their agenda was that if he's on his way there to raise Mecca to the ground and get rid of the Kaaba, then that basically will make Ta'if the sole major town and city of Arabia. And secondly, it will make the temple of Allah the primary pilgrimage site. And so all of this is a part of the people, the history of the people of Ta'if. So the Prophet of as I was saying, why did the Prophet ﷺ target Ta'if? As I said, this was a major city with a very large and powerful tribe, one that rivaled that one that rivaled Quraysh. And so the Prophet of Allah ﷺ realized that Ta'if could become a very strategic ally. In the preaching and teaching of the message of Islam, now that Mecca was basically, you know, extremely volatile, and Mecca was very, very dangerous now for the Prophet ﷺ and the believers, that the Prophet ﷺ said, if the people of Ta'if can be convinced, can be talked some sense into, then they accepting Islam would obviously boost a number of the believers, would give Muslims a sanctuary, and would make for very strategic allies. So all of these were considerations that the Prophet took, took. These were all factors the Prophet took into consideration when heading out towards Ta'if and when looking towards the people of Ta'if and the city of Ta'if. The other thing that should be mentioned here is that the city of Ta'if was also considered um, a very attractive place. Many, and, and something that we'll learn about later on, on the journey back from Ta'if, many of even the leaders of Quraysh had homes that were near Ta'if and even in Ta'if, because the weather in Ta'if was a lot better. It was known as a place of gardens and fruits and, and, and water, plentiful water. So it was considered a very attractive place. And for many of the leaders of Quraysh, it was considered a vacation home, a summer home. And so there were many, many different factors that made Ta'if a very, very strategic location. And so the Prophet of Allah took all this into consideration and set out, decided to head out towards Ta'if. Now the Prophet of Allah had very meager you know, means at this point. 
So the Prophet ﷺ could not afford some form of transportation. The only person that the Prophet ﷺ took on this journey with him was Zayd ibn Haritha, who was the third believer as we talked about in our earlier sessions after Khadija, Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, it was Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu anhu who was also uh, a servant of the Prophet ﷺ, but was also later on would be the adopted son of the Prophet ﷺ. So Zayd ibn Haritha accompanied the Prophet ﷺ. At this time he was a teenager. He was probably, or, or, or at the most maybe in his early 20s. He was in his early 20s because when he accepted Islam, he was about 15 years old. So this is about 10 years later. So he was about in his early to mid 20s. So he's a young man. So he accompanies the Prophet ﷺ and they set out. Ta'if was about Ta'if is about 70 miles from Mecca, Mecca al Mukarramah. So the Prophet ﷺ made this journey of 70 miles on foot. When we hear 70 miles, we might not think, think it's a lot. I live in you know South Arlington. That's like driving from Arlington to Frisco. So that might not seem like a whole lot, but remember they're journeying on foot. They're traveling by foot through mountainous regions, in Arabia, through the desert. So it's extremely difficult. The Prophet ﷺ is over the age of 50. He's just gone through a very difficult emotional experience. And it's only two people. It's not like some huge army or some caravan or some large entourage that is traveling with the Prophet ﷺ. It is two very extremely, you know, uh, humbly equipped individuals they probably didn't have a lot of supplies, they didn't have any means of transportation, they're traveling by foot, all by themselves, and t undertaking this journey. So the Prophet of Allah along with Zayd ibn Haritha, they set out and they make their way to Ta'if. Now this, I, I want to point out one thing here. A lot of times, and this goes back to a point that I have constantly made throughout our study of the seerah, whenever we read the seerah, unfortunately, um, due to summarizing, you know, the seerah a lot of times, because the, the, the lack of attention span that we have today, a lot of times the seerah will be presented, the entire life of the Prophet ﷺ will be presented in a hundred pages, if that much. So the journey to Ta'if is a page, two page, three pages long. Something that needs to be kept in mind, the Prophet ﷺ's journey to Ta'if was ten days long. It was ten days. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very significant amount of time. Try to, be, try to spend 10 days away from your home, from your family. 10 days is a very long time. So the, there's two different things that the books of Sirah mention. One mentions that he stayed at Ta'if for the entirety of 10 days. Some of the books of Sirah say, no, the entire journey was 10 days long. So either he, it took him a couple of days to make his way to uh, at Ta'if. He stayed there for maybe about a week or close to a week, five, six days, and then took him a couple of days on his way back. Wallahu ta'ala alam. But either way, it was a minimum of 10 days, which is a very significant amount of time. So the Prophet ﷺ makes his way to At-Ta'if. Now when the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Ta'if, how did the Prophet ﷺ go about in conducting himself? This is very important. This shows the prophetic wisdom and the prophetic strategy in terms of introducing yourself to a new community, arriving at a location, engaging with an existing community. How do you go about in do conducting yourself and doing this? 
So the Prophet ﷺ didn't arrive there, even though if anybody was entitled to doing so, it was the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. These are, these are mushrikun, these are people who worship idols. The Prophet ﷺ is arriving there with the truth, with tawheed, with the Qur'an, with the message of Allah. So if it was justified for anyone to do so, it was the Prophet ﷺ. But what did the Prophet ﷺ do? The Prophet ﷺ arrives in a ta'if, and he makes his way to the leadership of a ta'if. The books of Sirah mentioned that there were other leaders that he spoke to as well. Basically, the next you know, number of days, almost let's just say the next week or so, the Prophet ﷺ just went around scheduling appointments with the leaders of a ta'if. And if you've ever been in that position, you know what that's like. You call, you make an appointment. First of all, it takes you a couple of phone calls to make it all the way through to the secretary. You don't even get to the person you're trying to talk to. You get to their secretary and you say you want an appointment. Who are you? Why do you want one? Where are you coming from? What exactly is your purpose? What is your reason? You get stonewalled. And eventually somehow you're able to talk your way through. Some people end up saying, I'm sorry, he doesn't have time. He can't meet. Sorry, 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 sorry. You keep getting rejected. Finally, you make your way through to somebody and they say, well, he's really busy. The earliest he can see you is on Thursday. What do you do? You say, okay. Then you show up on Thursday, and what happens? You get delayed a couple of hours. I'm sorry, you had some meetings that went over, you're gonna have to come back tomorrow. And you show up the next day, you sit there, wait for a couple of more hours, and then finally, you get ushered into the office, and you're told you basically have five minutes. This is how real life works. And we have to understand that the Prophet of Allah that's what he was dealing with with these people. Because word about who the Prophet was and what he was here for had made its way to the leaders of a ta'if. And so some of them were stonewalling the Prophet But it mentions three specific leaders that the Prophet wanted to talk to above everyone else. There were three brothers. They were the sons of Amr bin Umair al-Thaqafi who was a great leader of a ta'if, and his three sons who were basically the key leadership in ta'if at that time. There were three brothers. Their names was Abdu Ya'lil, number two, Mas'ud, and number three, Habib. And so these were the three sons of Amr bin Umair al-Thaqafi. And the Prophet ﷺ wanted to speak to these three. Specifically out of them, it doesn't mention which one specifically, but it does mention that one of them was actually married to a woman from Quraysh. One of them was married to a woman from Quraysh, from Banu Jumah. And so the Prophet ﷺ specifically was targeting that individual that because his wife was from Quraysh and he had family in-laws back in Quraysh, that the Prophet ﷺ would be able to leverage that into getting a meeting with him and even finding maybe some, you know, some more, finding that person to be a little bit more receptive. So finally when the Prophet ﷺ was able to get through the door and sit down with them, the first one he spoke to, and the Prophet ﷺ presented him his purpose for being there and why he was there and the message of Islam and that there is one Allah and that he is the messenger of Allah and he has come to them with this message. The, the man responded to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, وَهُوَ يَمْرُطُ ثِيَابَ الْكَعْبَةِ إِنْ كَانَ اللَّهُ أَرْسَلَكَ أَمْرُطُ ثِيَابَ الْكَعْبَ إِنْ كَانَ اللَّهُ أَرْسَلَكَ That if God in fact has sent you as a messenger, you uh, understand the tone. He's saying in fact if God has actually sent you, you, this guy right here, you. If in fact He has sent you as a messenger, I will go all the way to Mecca and I will rip 
the cloth from the Kaaba and tear it to shreds. And, and this is basically, try, he's insulting the Prophet And he's saying that it is so shocking for you to be a messenger of God, that in fact if you are a messenger of God, I will go and defile the Kaaba. I will violate the Kaaba. And so that's how we disrespected the Prophet and kicked him out. The Prophet finally makes his way to the second brother. When he approaches him and sits down with him and talks to him. And you have to understand the Prophet of Allah his tone and his mannerism. And, and how he hasn't even engaged with the community yet. He's showing them respect not only through his words, but also through how he has conducted himself. He's arrived as any other traveler, minded his own business, stay, you know, kept to himself, stayed quiet until he has first spoken to the leadership. That is a great gesture of respect to them and their position as leaders of their community. How does this second individual respond to all this courtesy from the Prophet ﷺ? He says, "Ama wajad Allahu ahadan arsalahu ghayrak? Ama wajadan? Ama wajad Allahu ahadan arsalahu ghayrak? That did not God find anyone else aside from you that He could have sent as a messenger?" Really? You're trying to tell me that you were the only option on the table? He could not find anybody else to send as a messenger except from, aside from you? Really? And insulting and disrespecting the Prophet ﷺ in this way, he again dismisses him. The third one the Prophet ﷺ sits down with, he says, Wallahi la ukallimuka abadan. He said, I swear by God I will never speak to you. I have no interest in dialoguing with you. Before the Prophet ﷺ could even get started, he said, stop right there. I have no intention of communicating or dialoguing or discussing anything with you. We had nothing to talk about. He says, لَإِن كُنْتَ رَسُولًا مِنَ اللَّهِ كَمَا تَقُولْ لَأَنْتَ أَعْظَمُ خَطَرًا مِنَّنْ أَرُدَّ عَلَيْكَ الْكَلَامِ He says, لَإِن كُنْتَ رَسُولًا مِنَ اللَّهِ كَمَا تَقُولْ If you are in fact a messenger of God, as you say you are, لَأَنْتَ then it is extremely dangerous. You are an extremely dangerous individual. In case I reject you. If, I end up, if you are a messenger as you say you are, then rejecting you is an extremely dangerous thing to do. So you are way too dangerous to talk to in that case. Ignorance is bliss my friend. I'd rather not know who you are, not know what you have to say, and just go about my business as, as usual, as normal. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear anything. Almost as a side note, I can't help but kind of interject this. You know a lot of times somebody will try to tell you, like a friend or a relative, or somebody will try to tell you what's right, what's wrong. You're like, no, 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 no don't say anything. Don't ruin it for me. You have to understand that's an extremely unhealthy attitude. We might joke about it, or it might seem like it makes some sense, in some bizarre universe. But that's, that's an extremely unhealthy attitude. That ignorance is bliss attitude. This is, this, is, this is the attitude of these people, of shirk. So he says, I don't want to know what you have to say. Because you, if you are a messenger, and I don't agree with you, I'm inviting trouble. He says, secondly, in kunta takdibu ala Allahi, ma yanbaghi li an ukallimak. And on the other hand, if you are lying and lying about God Almighty Himself, then I have no interest in talking to you. It's not befitting for a person of my stature 
and my status to be conversing with a liar. With such a terrible liar. Conclusion, please leave. We have nothing to talk about. And he again dismisses the Prophet ﷺ in this way. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ got up and left from these meetings. And he realized that now was not the time. Now was not the time. He had explored, exhausted, whatever means he had, and now was not the appropriate time. Some of the narrations even say that some of the common folks of Makkah basically had come to know about the Prophet ﷺ visiting. He, while the Prophet ﷺ hadn't gone and started to disrupt the community and things like that, but still, you know, some conversations had taken place. But the Prophet ﷺ also understood and recognized, he was from Quraysh after all. He'd been dealing with people like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab and Akhnas bin Shuraiq and Umayyah bin Khalaf. He had been dealing with people of this, you know, this, that ilk. He had been dealing with people like this for over a decade. So he understood how these people operated. So the Prophet of Allah said, إِن فَعَلْتُمْ مَا فَعَلْتُمْ فَاكْتُمُوا عَلَيَّ He said, fine, you're doing whatever you want to do. You're doing whatever it is that you've decided to do. I've tried, I tried to talk to y'all, but y'all aren't listening. So y'all are gonna do what you have to do. But I have one request, فَكْتُمُوا عَلَيَّ Let's not blast this out into the public. You said you're not interested, I respected your wishes and left you alone. Now let me leave in peace. Let me leave quietly with, in peace. Don't cause me any trouble. They of course decided that they could not have that. So the Prophet of Allah decides to leave At-Ta'if. Now when the Prophet of Allah decides to leave At-Ta'if, he tells Zayd ibn Haritha, they've been there for a week, wherever they were staying, he tells them, let's pack up our stuff and let's head out. They decide to leave. In the meantime, some of these leaders of At-Ta'if decide this is not good enough for them. Dignity, certain amount of courtesy, respect, was something that was beyond them. They were below that, they were beneath that. So what they decided to do was send the word out into the streets, make some promises to you know, the street thugs and just people out in the streets that listen, this man who arrived here in our town, in our city, he's leaving. We'd like for you to make things difficult for him on his way out. You do what you have to do, be creative, but we want you to make things difficult for him on his way out. And some of the narrations even point to the fact, they made promises, you know, we'll, we'll pass out some bread, we'll give out some money, we'll, we'll take care of y'all. There's something in this for y'all. So, but we want you to make sure that you make things extremely difficult for him. So the narration says the Prophet of Allah is at the boundary of the city of Ta'if, trying to leave quietly and peacefully. Him and Zayd ibn Haritha. A bunch of the street thugs and, and just commoners of Ta'if gathered up outside on the highway, on the road that went outside of Ta'if, that left Ta'if. They gathered up around there. Some of the narrations say they lined up in two rows. Some of the narrations even mentioned that they sat down by the side of the road in two long rows on either side of the road. And everybody had rocks and stones with them. And the second the Prophet of Allah put his foot outside the city of Ta'if, he put his foot on the ground, they lifted up 
a rock each and they threw it at him. And when he would lift that foot back up, then they would throw another rock at him. When he would put another foot down, they would throw a rock at him. When he would put his other foot down, they would throw every single step he took, they, they, were, they were synchronized. They would throw rocks at him. And this, and some of the narrations even mention that a lot of them were targeting his feet to be very, just, just to be very hurtful. That when, as soon as his foot would touch the ground, they would throw rocks at his feet. And they did this with the Prophet ﷺ on the road outside of Ta'if. When Zayd ibn Haritha who saw this happening, he freaked out as you can imagine. He freaked out, what is going on here? What's wrong with these people? What's happening to the Messenger of Allah? So the narration says, Zayd ibn Haritha, they were all around them, both sides, throwing rocks from all sides. He jumped in front of the Prophet ﷺ, trying to deflect the rocks from him. And he said that one of them threw a really big rock and it hit Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu in the head. And he started bleeding from his head. And when the Prophet ﷺ saw him, he grabbed him and he pushed him aside and he said, stay out of the way, stay out of the way. They're targeting me. He pushed him out of the way. And this kept on happening on every single step the Prophet ﷺ took. And when the rows would run out, they would get up, they would gather up more stones, they would come back, line up for the next, you know, 100 feet or so, however many people they were, and they would continue. And they did this all the way from the boundary of the city of Ta'if, all the way to a place called Qarnul Tha'alib. Some of the books of history call it Qarnul Manazil. And this was a place where there were some gardens that were owned by some of the people of Quraysh. They did this all the way from there to here. And the books of history and seerah relate that this was about three miles long. Three miles. See, this is that part of the seerah that we need to be able to understand what it means. We have to really understand and embrace what it means. I want, you to, I want you to understand what three miles is. Imagine walking three miles, you're carrying luggage. And then on top of that, there's a deterrent. There's interference. There's interference, people throwing rocks and stones at you. For three miles. How long would it take to walk that distance? At least an hour? At least an hour it would take. At the very least, even if you started to walk fast. With all rocks being thrown at you, looking back and making sure Zayd is still there and he's okay. He's bleeding from his head. It will take at least an hour. Imagine for an hour, non-stop, every second, getting hit and pelted with stones and rocks. Dozens of them. Every single second. For an entire hour. When the Prophet ﷺ finally reached Qadnul Tha'alib, Qadnul Manazil, that place where there were some, there were some hawa'it, like gardens. They finally stopped and then they said, okay, I think we've done what we needed to do. And they packed up their stuff and they, the people, head back to Ta'if. And the Prophet ﷺ finally stopped. But by this time, the Prophet ﷺ was injured, bruised, bloodied, wounded, multiple places on his body, bleeding. His feet were literally torn. It's completely torn up. His feet were soaked in blood. Because they were targeting his feet. He had bled so much. He had blood literally, you know, running down his legs and his arms. 
His feet were so bloody, they were soaked in blood, they were completely torn up. To the point where his feet had bled so much, the Prophet ﷺ used to wear leather sandals. Like leather. Leather sandals. And as you know, with leather, it soaks things up. He had bled so much that his sandals had soaked up the leather. The narrations actually mentioned, تَلَوَّنَ نِعَالُهُ تَلَوَّنَتْ نِعَالُهُ His shoes had become colored red with blood. بِالدَّمْ They had gotten colored red with blood. And then blood, when it dries up, it's hard to scrape off and it's hard to remove. The, the blood had dried up and crusted his sandals to his feet. So that when he did finally sit down, he found a tree and he went under the shade of that tree and he sat down. That the narration says he had to literally peel those sandals off of his feet. He had to scrape and peel and rip them off of his feet. And then the narration mentioned sitting there at that place. Some of the narrations even mentioned that the Prophet stood in that condition and prayed to Rakat. But regardless, the Prophet standing there, sitting there under the shade of the tree, the Prophet of Allah looked up at the sky. And the Prophet of Allah made dua at that moment. This is one of those lessons in dua. When we turn to Allah, why we turn to Allah, how we turn to Allah. The Prophet of Allah made dua. And his dua has been related to us in multiple books of seerah and hadith. The Prophet of Allah said, Allahumma ilayka ashku du'fa quwwati. O Allah, to you alone do I complain of my own weakness. And to you alone do I complain of my lack of resources. And to you alone, O Allah, do I complain of my lack of respect in the eyes of people. O most merciful of all those capable of showing mercy. You are the Lord of the weak and the downtrodden. And you are my Lord and my Master. You see my condition, Ya Allah. Who do you hand me over to, leave me to, O Allah? To someone who is distant, and that's like an Arabic expression for saying, to someone who lacks any type of mercy, empathy, humanity, that that person would rough me up and would abuse me like this? Or to an enemy that you have put, that you have given power over me? Oh Allah, as long as you are not angry, you are not angry or displeased with me, I don't care. Oh Allah, if you have decided it is your will and your decree to hand me over to a merciless enemy who will abuse me, who will torment me, who will persecute me, who will torture me? That is fine by me, Ya Allah, as long as you are not angry and displeased with me. I will tolerate all of that. But the one thing I cannot live with is your displeasure and your anger with me. All I need, O oh Allah, is your forgiveness and your mercy and your protection. That's all I ask for. That's all I need. A'udhu bi nuri wajhik, alladhi ashraqat lahu 
Oh Allah, I take refuge in the nur of your face, the light, the illumination of your face that has enlightened, that has illuminated and removed the darkness from this entire world. And it is the correction of all the affairs of this life and the hereafter. Your nur, O oh Allah, that can remove the darkness, no matter how you know, overwhelming it may be. Your nur, O oh Allah, that can fix the world, that can fix all the problems that I have in this life, and that can most definitely fix all my problems in the hereafter. That's all I need, and I take refuge in your nur, O oh Allah. Min an tunzila that you send down your wrath and your anger upon me, O oh Allah, that's all I want to be protected from. That's all I need protection from. Oh, or that your displeasure or your punishment come down upon me. At the end of the day, O oh Allah, everything is done just so that you may be pleased. This is tolerated today, Ya Allah. This is dealt with today. This is tolerated today. Just so that you may be pleased with me. There is no power, there is no strength, there is no ability, except through your help and your mercy, O oh Allah. I am completely at your mercy. I am completely at your disposal. You do as you will with me, O oh Allah. You do as you please with me. Just as long as you are not angry with me, I can handle all of this. I will tolerate all of this. I will take all of this gladly. Just as long as you are never angry or displeased with me. The Prophet of Allah made this dua. The narration says, when the Prophet of Allah made this dua, Jibreel السلام, came down to the Prophet of Allah. And Jibreel السلام, comes to the Prophet السلام, and says salam to the Prophet. And he says, and then he says, he says, Inna Allaha qad sami'a qawla qawmika laka wa ma raddu alayka. Allah has heard what, your peop, what, what those people said to you. And He has also seen what they did with you. Wa qad ba'atha ilayka malaka al-jibal lita'murahu bima shi'ta fihim. And He has also sent me to you and along with me He has sent the angel that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in charge of the mountains to you at your disposal, at your surface, so that you can command him to do whatever it is that you want him to do with these people. ثُمَّ نَادَانِي مَلَكُ الْجِبَالِ The Prophet ﷺ said that the... Then the angel that is appointed to the mountains called out to me, فَسَلَّمَ عَلَيَّ And he said salam to me, he said, As-salamu alayka ya Rasulullah. He said salam to the Messenger of Allah and presented himself in the company of the Prophet Allah has heard what these people said to you. And I am the angel appointed to the mountains. Ta'if was, is a valley sitting between mountains. He said, قَدْ بَعَثَنِي رَبُّكَ إِلَيْكَ لِتَأْمُرَنِي بِأَمْرِكَ فَمَا شِئْتَ That your Lord has sent me to you to be completely at your disposal, at your command, so that you may command me to do whatever it is that you want to be done with these people. إِنْ شِئْتَ أَنْ أُطْبِقَ عَلَيْهِمْ الْأَخْشَبَيْنِ That if you want, 
I can command these mountains to collide and crush all these people that's, that live between them. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ بَلْ أَرْجُوْ أَنْ يُخْرِجَ اللَّهُ مِنْ أَصْلَابِهِمْ مَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ وَحْدَهُ لَا يُشْرِكُ بِهِ شَيْئًا The Prophet of Allah said, no, 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 no. I have no ill will towards these people. Rather, instead of ordering you to destroy these people, I rather have hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring from these people, He will bring forth generation upon generation, a progeny from these people who will worship Allah alone and will not associate any partners to Allah. This was the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is how, how the Prophet ﷺ handled the situation at Ta'if in the immediate aftermath of Ta'if, which was this brutal treatment by the people of Ta'if towards the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. That the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, number one, made dua. He turned to Allah. And even what he said in his dua is very relevant. He didn't just say, Oh Allah, look what these people did, destroy these people. He said, No, oh Allah, I'm only concerned about one thing, that you're still pleased with me. That you are not angry with me. That you are not displeased with me. That's all that matters to me, ya Allah. Everything else can be handled with. Everything else can be dealt with. But I cannot deal with your displeasure towards me. And then secondly, when the Prophet has presented the opportunity for retribution, for vengeance, for revenge. The Prophet of Allah prays for the guidance and the hidayah of these people. We're gonna go ahead and stop here because it's getting close to the time of Salat al-Isha. In the following uh, session, what we'll basically talk about is what exactly now occurs with the Prophet of Allah ba- Building off of this, we'll also talk a little bit about you know, the history of the people of Ta'if in the generations to come. Who came from the people of Ta'if? And what was the outcome of the dua of the Prophet of Allah This great display of humility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the Prophet And we'll also then talk about what exactly now transpires. This place, Qadrul Manazil, Qadrul Tha'alib, a very amazing, unbelievable event takes place here. And we'll talk about this in the following session as well. One of the primary lessons that I want to point out from this along with turning to Allah, making dua to Allah, and seeking out the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even when dealing with such brutality at the hands of people. Another lesson that we should not forget is how the Prophet ﷺ conducted himself in the city of Ta'if. He respected their protocol. As preposterous as it may have been, he respected their protocol. He went to their leaders. When their leaders said, leave, he said, I will leave. I will not, you know, go to the people and rile them up against you. You similarly don't rile the people up against me. Maintaining peace and order was a core value of the da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ. And something we need to be very particular about and pay attention to. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu la ilaha illa anta. Nasakfiru wa natubu ilayk. As I mentioned in the beginning of the Sira class, you know, some of, a lot of times I have to end up referencing earlier events and occurrences in the Sira. Remember that you can go to the website, Qalam Institute slash podcast and there you can access all the previous Sira sessions and in fact I encourage everyone to review that so that we are making sure that we're building on and benefiting from the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.